Well, brethren, we know that prophetic things are speeding up. We had one of the greatest uh, balance of trade, uh, negative balances of trade uh, in our history, the greatest, I guess, which was announced this morning in the newspaper. And the American dollar continues to go right on down, and the euro continues to go right on up. And I commented on that several years ago for the first time. Everything in prophecy indicates that a coming United States of Europe, a gathering of the European nations, is going to develop... And they will get stronger, and we will get weaker. Now, Billy Graham and Earl Roberts and Jerry Falwell and Hal Lindsey even, and all these guys who speak on prophecy, they don't understand that. They don't understand anything about it at all because they have rejected the key of the knowledge of the identity of the tribes of Israel today. So, of course, they can't understand uh, much of the end-time prophecy because of that. But let's do be watching it. We realize that the end of this age is coming and these specific things are happening even while we sit here. We're having more American soldiers and personnel killed overseas. We're pouring out billions and hundreds of billions of dollars to the Middle East to help Israel, to help Iraq, to help Afghanistan and help our warfare and in the rebuilding over there as well, of course. And the European nations are going to help us as little as they can. And most of it is going to come right out of our tax dollars. And in the meantime, our dollar goes down and the euro goes up. And that is going to have an effect. We are going to have an effect from that. And that's already beginning to cause many commodity prices to go way up. Many of them are at all-time highs and eventually will translate into inflation, of course, if they can get the job market going again. That is an if. But at any rate, they're printing money and they're doing everything they can to do that. So let's pray about it and understand that Almighty God is moving things ahead. And this work is one of the very few avenues through which God is giving his message to the world to help them understand what's going on. And we are the spear point of that work because we're on television now uh, all over the world. And certainly our television power is increasing. Uh, WGN is increasing a great deal in power. They're adding a lot more power and more stations and so on. And so we're going to have a lot more listeners in a few weeks. I think that begins the first of the year. It does do some of it, Mr. Uh, Pyle. And uh, in fact, I'll be having <coughs> Monica contact you or I will uh, early Monday morning if you could get that together. I should have I mentioned publicly because I want to put that in the coworker letter. And I don't remember the specific facts on that. But at any rate, uh, those things are happening. And we're going to be more and more the spear point of the work as we get that message out all over the world of what's happening, the real meaning behind it, and, uh, of course, the purpose that God is working out here below. Well, brethren, we're going to get more persecution. The work is going to grow, but we're going to get more persecution. We also are going to get more persecution as a nation uh, because American Britain uh, are the top dogs, and America particularly is the top dog. Other nations are jealous of that. They're going to attack us and more and more try to bring us down. That's human nature. Apart from God, that's the way it always works and always will work until Christ returns. Also, we know we have to have a lot more power in the work of God. As Mr. Ames said, our income is up 7.8%. We're grateful for that. And proportionally, that's more than most even of the Church of God groups, perhaps more than any of them so far as we know, proportionally. But we're small, and we've got over 6 billion people out there we need to reach. So somewhere along the line, if we do our part, and we're moving forward as we should be, closer to God, God will bless us and empower us, but we do have to do our part. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say that the church of God moves forward on its knees. 
And we've got to move forward on our knees and pray to God perhaps more fervently, more regularly, more heartfeltly and greater detail than we've ever done. And that's one of the ways that we, of course, walk with God is to pray to God all through the day, all the time. And I hope we can understand that. I want to give you this morning five special prayer keys and how you can use them. We've had other sermons on prayer. I've written a booklet on prayer. I've talked about prayer. Mr. Ames has talked about prayer. But we certainly need this regularly. Here's key number one, and I want you to take notes if you have your pen, uh, pen, pen and uh, pad and pen, because these are things that can help you and help you move forward in your walk with God. First of all, learn to talk to God in detail. I'm going to give you a little slightly different approach in this, so it's not the same ones I've always given before or have been given necessarily elsewhere. Some of them are the same, but there's some basic things you might not always think about. Talk to God in detail. Turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. John writes, When he opened the seventh seal, this was Jesus Christ opening the seals, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Well, of course, we know what that shows, that there were no women in heaven. Silence in heaven. For <laughs> That's that old Protestant joke. You ladies will have to excuse me. <laughs> silence in heaven for half an hour. I saw the seven uh, angels stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints. So you see, in God's mind, the incense, this sweet-smelling odor, was like the prayers of the saints. And he describes that even here in the book of Revelation. It was coming up with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. Before the very throne of the Creator, this is the picture that is given. All the prayers of all the saints were accompanied by incense. Now turn back to Leviticus, if you would, the book of Leviticus and chapter 16. In Leviticus 16, and beginning here in verse 11, most of you know this is the Day of Atonement ritual that's being described, and I won't try to read all of it here. But Aaron then was to bring this bull of the sin offering for himself, verse 11, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And Aaron was to kill the bull as the sin offering which was uh, for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the eternal. Here, of course, was the tabernacle and the thing that later became the temple, of course, picturing the very throne of God. And with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. Now, the incense was to be beaten fine. And some of you have heard us mention this before, but it is good to review this occasionally and get our minds on it. God wants our prayers beaten fine. That incense which goes up to God pictures our prayers. And God wants that beaten fine. He wants us to talk to him in detail. And brethren, most of you know, because you've grown up in Roman Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant homes, as I did, most of us grew up in Protestant homes, but the Roman Catholic homes, if they prayed over the meal or said grace or had prayers, are basically the same thing. Ritual. I remember working for this uh, man named Ward Henry, very nice man up in northeastern uh, Kansas during the summer of 1945. And he was a religious man, and uh, every meal they would 
bow their head and pray over the meal. And he had the same prayer exactly word for word. He'd go, but we thank you, Father. Amen. And then his wife would jump up. Okay, now we can eat. And she just real quick, almost before he got the amen out, that's done and we're back to reality now. And we've babbled our babble and that's all over with. And that's all it was. They were sincere. I don't mean they were insincere. I think they meant well. They thought if they babbled this babble and repeated these same words over and over and over and over every day, every meal, every time they ate, then that would be good. And I suppose that was better than nothing. But they, he gave it real quick in a monotone, and then she jumped up immediately as, okay, that's finished, and we can get back to reality now. And so for a couple of months I was hearing that and realized, as I've done in other people's homes, of course, many, many times in the Protestant families, that that's what they often do. And uh, they don't understand it's the same thing over and over. Some people pray the Lord's Prayer over and over. Jesus didn't say pray this prayer over and over. He said, after this manner, pray you, our Father who art in heaven. He didn't say pray these words. He said, after this manner, and he gave them an outline prayer. And everywhere else he prayed, he didn't pray that prayer. Every time you read a prayer of Peter or Paul in the Bible, it's not that prayer. They followed that outline, though, probably, most of the time in their personal prayer, although there might be an emergency prayer that wouldn't follow that outline and so on. We understand that, a quick prayer or other kinds of prayer. But he gave us an outline as to how to pray, the basic things to mention. And that's all they meant by that. But again, they get that into uh, a kind of a babble. In our Methodist church where my sister and I grew up, why uh, Dr. Ridpath would uh, get it, lead us into it, and he would and say, now he, he'd... Uh, He'd give a kind of a prayer for the congregation. And then he said, and now as, as your son taught us to pray, and then the whole congregation would join in and repeat the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and that was just whatever. A lot of them had no idea. It says, thy kingdom come. They're not, they don't understand what it means, thy kingdom come. I didn't understand. None of my friends in our Sunday school class understood. Uh, they somehow thought it was maybe a sweet feeling in the heart or, or the church or something. We talked about it very rarely, but I think once or twice it was discussed as my friends would have a, kind of a, a hangover and begin to talk about God and what's going on, and they didn't understand anything. So they didn't get it, had no idea. They just repeat these babbles. We've got to be different. Every one of you, even though you have that in your background, you've got to be different. You've got to talk to God as a father. When I had to get my, I wanted to buy my first home with Mr. Armstrong's encouragement, he was buying Dick Armstrong a home, and he said, well, I can't buy you and Herman and Norman and you guys here homes, but he said, uh, I can help you with the landscaping and a few things he was going to help us with. But he said, maybe you could get a, he wanted up some of us to get homes, his young evangelists, he called us, or young executives, and we were teaching at the college and so on. So uh, he suggested I get a loan from my parents to help on the down payment. And I hadn't thought of that and was kind of scared about it. But I did talk to my father and I talked to him in detail. And certainly he questioned me in detail because he and my mother didn't have a lot of money and so on at that time. And they were willing to cash in some whatever it was, part of their life savings. And they'd grown up and, of course, I was born and grew up during the Depression. And things were still hard uh, for them even when I was asking for this loan uh, in the uh, late 1950s 
But I explained to Dad that I had now had a steady job for a number of years. I had some savings. I had a car. I had a wife. Uh, I was uh, in a kind of an, a job that was going to be very secure. The work was growing, and I would pay him back and even gave him a figure of how much I could pay back every month and pay it back regularly. I just had to have a down payment, and he would talk to me. And so I explained the whole thing, lots of details, and we talked longer than I think I'd ever talked to him on the phone before. And then he said, well, I guess we can do that if you can pay it back. So he did. And they loaned me a couple thousand dollars, and I did pay it back even with interest. I don't think they asked for interest, but I gave them one or two extra payments and sort of interest or thanksgiving at the end of the paying off period. And But that was a, a talk. I had to talk to my dad in detail on that occasion. And, you know, sometimes you need to talk to your father in heaven in detail. And you should do that as you pray. It's a very important thing to do. Ask his help. Ask his guidance. Ask for his healing. Ask for his blessing, his correction, his deliverance in detail. And brethren, I'd like to comment just on one thing. And of course, this is being filmed for around the world. All you brethren, we read regularly in our church services as we did here in the announcement period. And a lot of you do about the death of this man or that woman or whatever. And it's always sad for anyone to die. But as I have noticed, the majority... And I think in most cases, the vast majority of the people are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s that are dying. And this one man, if it is who we think would be up in age, of course, probably 70-something or 80-something. So we don't always give their age, but it's not as though God has forsaken us. Uh, King David died at age 70. I'm three years older than King David uh, was when he died. King David, 3,000 years ago, died at age 70, old and full of days. Remember reading that? Go back and read about his death. Old and full of days. Now, Mr. Ames will soon be old and full of days, so don't you smile too big. <laughs> he was laughing at me when I said I'm old. <laughs> but we're all getting there. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, uh, anyway, we have to realize that a lot of you are old and full of days. You're just about to be age 70, and some few of you are perhaps even older than I am. And uh, we are living on borrowed time, and if some of us die at age 75 or 80 or 87 or something, well, we'll sorrow for whoever dies. I hope you'll say a quick prayer for me or my wife especially, whoever's left behind, but whatever. But you know what I mean. It's not, oh, God, God, where are you? Well, God didn't promise all of us that we would live to be 90. So let's understand that. Sometimes he lets a younger person die, and we're sorry about that, especially if they're cut off in the prime of life. Sometimes God allows people to die uh, actually in an act of mercy, too, because if they're not really being called or not overcoming, or he knows, and as I've looked back, and I don't want to cite things, but I can see, I can name a lot of names, why God did allow that. It was very obvious to me why he did. Uh, people in the work, sometimes leading people way back when, God had a reason for it. So talk to God in detail about your needs and about your desires and about what you want and about, of course, the work of God, and about others you're praying for. Ask in detail about these things. Say, well, Father, uh, my friend over here is in the church, and he has this problem, and please help him, but help him learn the lessons. I'm praying for someone at this point pretty regularly, and I love him, and I pray for him regularly, almost every day. But I ask along with uh, praying about a healing that God would uh, grant this person understanding to learn the lessons that he needs to learn so he can have a good reward in the kingdom of God because I love him. 
I'm not against him. I'm for him. I love him. And I also remind God, and I try to remind myself normally, even at that very moment, please help me to learn the lessons I need to learn. I want to be self-righteous. Well, he needs to learn lessons, but here I am. I don't need to learn any lessons. No, I need to learn lessons every day of my life. I've got to overcome. I've got to grow. So talk to God in detail about your desires and about the lessons you need to learn, the lessons others need to learn, and talk, think through things with God, in a sense. After you've studied His Word, uh, after you've meditated, and it's learned, you've got to learn to meditate. And I know all of us need to do that. I used to study, but I thought, I've learned later in life, I've got to think and just sit down and let it roll around in my mind and think through what does this really, really mean and what's the depth of this understanding? And how can I use this? And how is this going to affect us five or ten years from now? All kinds of things like that. Meditate along those lines as you study God's Word. And then pray and ask God to help you make that understanding part of your life. And ask God to help His people, your friend, your loved ones, to learn those lessons. And to heal us, but most of all to heal us spiritually. Because this here is spiritual he- healing is a thousand times more power, more important than a physical healing, frankly, when you understand. Some of you have heard me explain, as most of you have, I think, by now, because I've used the example many times of this Mrs. Beam, B-E-A-M, who was healed dramatically of breast cancer. One breast had been cut off, and the other one was to be removed, and the cancer was all through that part of her body, and I think clear over into her, her uh, maybe lymph nodes and elsewhere, and the doctors found it in a big clinic in this city, a specialist big clinic, the same doctors. It was not some, uh, you know, chiropractor or nutritionist that said this. There's a team of medical doctors who'd already removed the other breast, found the thing had spread. And so it was definitely cancer. It wasn't some accident. She had that funny look and smell as I talked later to the ladies that took care of her. And all of a sudden, the pe- cancer people often have. <laughs> and she was dramatically healed. And that was just tremendous. And I flew over there and saw her later and saw the ladies that took care of her. And it was a dramatic, powerful, wonderful miracle, a healing of the physical body. What could be more important than that? Well, I can tell you what could be more important because a few years later, she and her husband moved to Hawaii, as I understand it, and she fell away from the church, from all branches of the church. There was only one branch at that time. Well, there was the the Seventh-day Church out of of uh, Sanbury, Missouri, the late, the uh, Sardis Church, but you know, we weren't all split up at that time. She just left. She fell away. The spiritual healing is more important than the physical healing. And I could tell you stories about a number of other people who had dramatic, you know, very powerful physical healings, but they needed most of all to be healed spiritually, to have a depth of humility, a depth of the knowledge and understanding and fear of God. The absolute awareness that God is the center of our existence and that everything revolves around God. Nothing is more important than that. And everything we think or say or do has to be thought of and acted on in relationship to that one great central fact that God is a real God. He made us in His image. In Him we live and move and have our being. And so if we get rid of that understanding, then we're sunk. Everything else means virtually nothing. Turn to Second Kings 19, brethren, if you would. Second Kings. This is Second Kings 19, and I'm going to begin reading here 
in verse uh, 14. Here you find the story of King Hezekiah receiving a letter from the Syrian king Sennacherib who had come up and threatened Jerusalem and had to back off, was very arrogant. And as you read the preceding chapters and some after that, you see he is putting down the God of Israel saying, I have conquered all these other nations. Their gods didn't save them. What makes you think your God's going to save you? And he threatened and belittled Hezekiah and threatened and belittled the God of Israel. And here was Hezekiah with a very small army, very small power physically compared to Sennacherib because the Assyrian Empire was spreading and was at the height of his power at this time. And so he then was turned back from attacking Jerusalem on this occasion because God distracted him. Hezekiah had prayed and and they had problems over here in another area and had to leave. But he sent Hezekiah a letter. Okay, Hezekiah, don't get smart about it. He says, I'm coming back and get you, and I'm going to wipe you out. And so in verse 14, 2 Kings 19, verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Eternal and spread it before the ever-living one. You see, even though Hezekiah was not converted, no doubt, in the same way we are today, certainly didn't have the understanding. He might be in the kingdom. I don't know, but most of those kings were not really converted. The spirit may have been with them, though, but not yet in them in most cases, unless they were also a prophet. But he knew about the God of Israel. He knew about the Yahweh, the ever-living one. And that God was real to him. He spread it before him, this letter, like you'd get a letter from someone threatening you or a letter from your child or your friend who says, I'm dying and tell you detail about what's happening. And you'd get up and spread this letter out on your prayer branch or your couch or just maybe something in a chair before which you pray to kind of bolster you as you pray and then lift up your hands to God or whatever. You sometimes have something there. I do quite often. He spread it before the eternal, just like here's the letter, God. And what are you going to do about it in a respectful, humble way, though? Then Hezekiah prayed and said, O eternal God of Israel, the one who dwells between the Caribbean, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. He reminds God, and he reminds himself, of course, we hallow God's name, not because God needs to be flattered, but because it helps us to focus on whom we're talking to. Incline your ear, O eternal, hear Open your eyes, O eternal, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. See, this wasn't just a threat to Hezekiah. He says, this is a reproach to you, O God. Truly eternal, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations of their lands. Yes, they've done this, God. You know that. All their gods didn't deliver them. And they've cast their gods, these other pagan gods, into the fire. For they are not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, eternal our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the eternal God, you alone. This is a powerful prayer. Maybe it was summarized in the account. We don't know that. It may well have been summarized and probably was when you understand the Bible. The Bible doesn't give us every word that's said everywhere. But this was the essence of this prayer at any rate. So he poured out his heart to God. And brethren, 
this work needs to grow powerfully. We're tiny. And some of you may not realize we're going to grow, but we are, if we keep on our present course, put it that way, and do our part, it is going to grow. We are going to have a lot more power. Someone on this earth is going to give themselves to God and they're going to be used of God to do His work and to carry out these prophecies of the gospel of the kingdom of God being preached to all the world before the end. And we're going to have to help complete that job that he started through Mr. Armstrong. And we are at this point, the spear point of that work more than any other work on earth. And most of you know that, I think. I don't want to analyze the others. A few others are doing something. Most of them are doing virtually nothing. But one or two others are doing something. But we're preaching it more powerfully, more fully, and are right at the cutting edge of doing the work of God. And if we keep that attitude of putting our hearts in it, and yet keep humble, realize how weak we are, God will use us. God can raise up rocks to do the work. I know that. You know that. But there's no account of God ever having to raise up rocks if He has a people who are crying out to Him, willing, you know. And look, Isaiah said, I'm, I'm here, send me. And He wanted to. And if we are here, we say, we're here, send me. Not because we have vanity. We don't all have to play a Jonah, though. Jonah wasn't converted. He didn't have God's Holy Spirit in him. It wasn't offered then. If we really are converted already, and we have God's Spirit in us, we should want and desire and crave to have that opportunity to finish the work of God. That is one of the greatest honors we could possibly have to be brought in to the kingdom of God, and Christ say, you were ones that yielded to me and helped bring about, you know, the preparation at least for the kingdom of God. You helped prepare my way, and so on. So we want to do that, I hope, every one of us. And we have to talk to God and say, God, there's this six billion people out there. Most of them never heard the word Armstrong in their entire lives. In fact, probably only 1% or less And I'm not exaggerating. I'm talking about the six billion people that are still alive. Most of Mr. Armstrong's listeners who used to hear him on night after night on KN, uh, not KNX, but uh, anyway, these old stations will come to my mind. XEG and the other big old stations we used to be on, XERB and so on. They're dead. Most of them are my age or older. They're dead. They're not here anymore. And a lot of the rest of them have fallen away. So less than 1% of the entire earth ever heard the word Armstrong, probably, or Herbert Armstrong in that connection. They've heard of Louis Armstrong, the jazz musician, or uh, Neil Armstrong who went to the moon. They never heard of Herbert Armstrong. We're not putting him down. I devoted the vast majority, of virtually all of my adult life, to helping Mr. Armstrong in the work of God from age 19 on. I had fire in my belly, and I did it. And so I'm not putting that work down. I was an integral part of it, and I'm carrying it on, and I honor him in doing that. I just say we've got a lot more to do, and we'd better do it. And God knows that. Where are these kids that are the age of my kids going to hear this truth? People in their 20s and people in their teens and younger. They've not heard. Ted Armstrong is now gone. He's not preaching anymore. He didn't get the opportunity because of his own problems to be on very many stations or have much power for the last 15 or 20 years. Who's going to do it if we don't? We can say, Father in heaven, there are these billions of people out there and they need your truth. This world needs what we have to give. Please help us. 
Please help us to have the power and the work. Grant us in your time the gifts of the Spirit to heal the sick, to discern spirits, to cast out demons, to perform miracles. Not because we're as good as the apostles, we're not. But because Philip did, Stephen did, men who were just ordained as deacons, and others did in the work of God back then. And because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, help us, use us, empower us. This world needs it. They're confused. They're beginning to authorize same-sex marriage. They're killing more millions, slaughtering hundreds of millions, not hundreds, but many millions of unborn children. And all this stuff is getting worse and worse in our society all the time. Please help us to get out the message that men may know that you are God and that you have true servants on this earth and that they will listen. And we can talk to God like that in detail, and we should. So anyway... He says, now hear, O Eternal, save us that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Eternal alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, of course, Isaiah, the prophet, was guided by God, inspired, a message came, okay, tell him, I've heard your prayers. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, that which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And so a little later, just to shorten it, you can read all the story this afternoon. It's still the Sabbath. But you just look over to verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the eternal went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians. Some of them were still camping out waiting for Sennacherib's order to come on in. He killed 185,000. And when the people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. And so King Sennacherib departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. And it came to pass, God didn't bless that man. He went home, this king who'd threatened him, and he was worshiping in the God of, in the temple of Misrach, his pagan god, and his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with a sword. Two of his own sons killed him, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Ezar Hadden, his son, reigned in his place. And you can see some of the Assyrian uh, uh, monuments and some of these scrolls or writings on them in the British Museum and in the Eastern Museum there in, I forget the name of it, in East Berlin, as it used to be called, and elsewhere, some of these very uh, writings. And Ezra Hayden is mentioned. He was there. Those things did happen. And as each 10-year, each decade goes by, they're discovering more and more of these things that validate these stories in the Bible. These are real things. They did happen. The God of Israel is alive. He's our God. The Lord God of the armies of Israel is the God of this work. He's the God of this church. But we need to know He's real. And we need to talk to Him in detail as our Father. Secondly, talk to God regularly. Talk to God regularly. A lot of us don't do that as much as we should. You find back in 1 Thessalonians, if you would turn there, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 5, and beginning in verse uh, 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 16, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians 5, 7, or 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We should constantly give God thanks. We should rejoice, being an attitude of worship and adoration 
as we pray, not feeling sorry for ourselves, but as Mr. Davis said, we're the most blessed people on the earth. Sometimes we think, well, God has given us everything we want right now, so maybe God's not around. Well, God's not used to jumping at the crack of our whip. And most of us don't walk with Him and talk with Him and cry out to Him remotely, as the Apostle Paul undoubtedly did. No doubt He doesn't pour out His Spirit on us in the same way. Maybe when we start walking with Him, like Peter and James and John did, we'll begin to get more of those gifts and more of that power. But we've got our part to do. So we're to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean we babble with our mouths every day, I mean all day long, every minute, but we never cease praying. We pray regularly. We pray throughout the day. Mr. Armstrong used to say that he often prayed 30 to 60 times a day. And I misquoted him there. I don't mean that he said a lot. I heard him say that twice. And once was just to me alone. He didn't brag about it, but he and I were close at one point, and he used to call... Herman and me, Herman Hannah, his sons in the Lord, and that was before Dick was baptized and before uh, Ted was out of the Navy, and we were close to him for a while, very close. So he did occasionally open up and tell his personal things. He didn't go around bragging about it. But he did say that he sometimes prayed, maybe he said often or sometimes, 30 to 60 times a day. He said, I mean, just a quick prayer, Rod, as I'm driving over, I pray that God will help me do the 7.30 program. I pray in the morning and then pray as I'm driving over in the car. And then after the program, I would thank him. And then at mid-morning, I might pray again about something. And then I had to make a phone call to some radio station manager to get on their station. And I would pray that God would grant me grace and favor in his sight. And then again, some other thing before noon and then pray over the noon meal and, and then through the afternoon and evening. Just say quick prayers through the day, plus praying two or three times on his knees. And that's what we need to do. Pray without ceasing. Constantly pray off and on in that way. Notice Second Thessalonians chapter uh, uh, 1 and beginning in verse 3. Just the next page here in most of your Bibles. Paul says these things elsewhere. I'm just reading this one because it's close by. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward one another, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for all your patience, faith, and all your persecutions. Did they have trials? You better believe it. The church of God, the churches of God had persecutions and trials. They had tribulations that you endure. So he said, your faith grows, and so we thank God. And we pray. he prayed for them regularly, you see. So think about that. We're to learn to pray regularly for the churches. We're to learn to pray for our brethren as best we can. I don't pray for every church on earth. I don't know the names of all the places, but I try to pray for the churches in South Africa and Mr. Hull and Mr. Tyler and the churches in Australia. And sometimes I'll devote a prayer to those things more than others. Other times just mentioned in passing. We have to pray for those things off and on. As problems come, we can pray. Well, Father, this problem is here or there. Please help those people. Guide your work. Guide your church. Guide our brethren around the world. Constantly talking to God about His people, about our brethren, about His church, about His work. And certainly we need to do that just like the Apostle Paul did. And God put that in here for our instruction. So we can learn. Turn back to Daniel, if you would, brethren. This would be Daniel chapter 6, something you're very familiar with, but let's review it. Remember, 
there had been a writing signed that no one was to pray to any other god except the god of Nebuchadnezzar at this particular point and, uh, and uh, for so many days. But Daniel had to keep praying to God. Now, Daniel could have said, well, God will let me off the hook and I'll just not pray to him and, and he'll understand. No, Daniel knew they were tightening the screws on him. If you read the account here in the first few verses, these other leaders were jealous of him and they were going to get him one way or the other. So even if he didn't pray for a while and that worked and got Nebuchadnezzar off his back, then they would have, they would have come at him some other way. He needed God. He did not stop praying even though it would have cost him his life according to what the king wrote. He prayed anyway. Now when Daniel knew, verse 10, that the writing was signed that they were not to pray to any other god, you see, at that point in time, when the writing was signed, the writing of the king, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open. Spies could have been around there. In fact, they were. His windows were open toward Jerusalem. Now, we don't have to pray toward Jerusalem today because we can pray in any place at any time. I often try to pray forward toward the north. I have a prayer uh, area in my wife's uh, computer room and sewing room, and, and the, I can look out the window, and it's private, so I don't bother her. So I'm grateful we have a house where I can do that. God is in the sides of the north. <laughs> but sometimes I'm somewhere in a hotel, and I don't know where I am, and I don't know where the sides of the north are. I just pray to God. But when I can, I have a place like that when it's convenient and so on. But he was praying toward Jerusalem, which was where the temple of God used to be. It wasn't there, but by habit and by that honor he gave to the place of God, uh, he prayed. And he knelt down on his knees. How do you pray to God? You can pray to God sitting. You can pray to God sitting in the car. You can pray to God, as I have hundreds of times, walking around, looking up at the stars at night all alone. You can pray to God anywhere, in any position, at any time. But obviously, you honor God more and you are more inclined to put your heart in your prayer if you, in your major prayer, perhaps in the morning before other things distract you and get you busy, where you put off prayer. You see, if you put God first in the thing that you do each day, I don't get up and immediately pray because I'm not totally awake. God knows that, but I try to shave and throw hot water on my face and get and get awake and so on, comb my hair, then pray. But then before I eat or get started, before people start calling or I get to work and walk right in, well, Mr. Meredith, uh, Mr. Davis, you need to be getting right on this coworker letter. And then Tom, you've got to sign these things, big problems over here. You've got to sign this legal thing. And here we go. You know, I get distracted. I can't do that. I better pray before I get there. I have to say, God, keep these guys off my back. Protect me from evil. <laughs> and uh, do my, help me do my part as I should. I'm kidding. They're, they're trying to help. But anyway, he, he knelt down on his knees, both knees, one knee to a king, two knees to God. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. That wasn't some unusual thing he started to do for a short time. He had been doing that for years and under pain of death, he kept right on doing it anyway. You see what I mean? He put his faith and trust that God would honor that and deliver him. So that is a tremendous example. He prayed constantly. He did not give up in prayer. 
He prayed anyway, even though it was dangerous. I say physical danger at that point. Turn back to Psalm, if you would, uh, Psalm 55. Again, a famous one we often use. Example of the man after God's own heart. Psalm 55, beginning in verse 16. David is writing, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Eternal shall save me. Which he certainly did save David over and over and over again. Yes, he let him die at age 70. It was a pointed time, and David had all kinds of wounds and beaten, was beaten up. His wounds sank on one occasion, he tells us in the Psalms. War wounds. He may have had gangrene. We don't know what all they got. God still let him live a long time. He lived up to age 70. But he says, as for me, I'll call upon God evening and morning and at noon. Now, this was the time of the evening or the time of the sacrifices. They had the sacrifices to the God of Israel at three o'clock in the afternoon and in the morning and at noon. And he prayed at those times as their custom. We don't have to pray at those exact times. I don't usually try to pray at three o'clock in the afternoon, but I do try to pray in the morning and again at night before I go to bed. And sometimes, as best I'm able, not every time, but often I will pray, you know, in late morning or early afternoon or late afternoon in the office there somewhere where I get a midday prayer. So you're praying three times a day. And I don't do that every time as much as Daniel did, by the way. So I'm not bragging. I often do it a lot. I should do it a lot more. Evening, morning, and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud. You see, that's what Daniel did. Some of you have jobs where you really couldn't pray during the noon or around the middle of the day unless you went back in the restroom, but you could go right back in the stall and you might not get to kneel down for that prayer. But as you're in a toilet stall, and I've done this, I've prayed in all kinds of situations, believe me, and uh, and, and just to pray for three or four minutes. They don't know what you're doing in there. <laughs> they think you're going to the bathroom. But if you're quietly praying, and you could even kind of, kind of, you know, if you're down below the level where the railing is, you could be lifting up your hands and standing and praying to God. To talk to God. There are places and ways to do it. I've told you how in the old baptizing tours when I went out with uh, Bert McNair and others, and sometimes uh, we would pray, and I'd be in a, they used to have these uh, cute, cozy court, cheap motel places we'd go into, and, you, they didn't, we would pull in under the overhang, kind of a, not a full garage, but you'd pull in under an overhang. So in the Midwest, it'd be icy in the, maybe in the winter and maybe rainy in the summer. So we could pull our car in. And so if the cozy court room was too crowded and there were too many cockroaches in the bat, in the bathroom, why Burke would pray in one place and I, when it, one, once or twice I went out, or I think at least three times, but anyway, through the years, uh, I'd be praying in the back seat of the car. And I'd kneel down in the back seat of the car and hunch down and be praying to God so I'd have more privacy. I'd like to mutter when I pray, you know, and kind of talk to God. And, and uh, one time the, the night watchman came around and trying to like, Oh, what are you doing? And, and I said, Well, I'm praying. And he, oh, I, I'm a theology student. I told him or something. And he, he, he said, Well, yeah, you're... And you say, This is our car. And we live... Oh, I'm sorry. And he just went right on. He never, he realized it's very sincere. I wasn't there. I was in the back seat. He figured that out pretty quick, I guess, the way I said it. So he didn't bother me again. <laughs> so you can pray in the back seat of the car and you can pray in a lot of different situations if you want to find a place to pray during the middle of the day. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, evening, morning, and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. So we can cry out to God regularly if we want to. If God is important to us as our Father in heaven, 
the one in whom we live and move and have our being, who gives us every breath of air we breathe, who's guiding us through the day, who's using us to prepare for his kingdom, yes, we can talk to him regularly if we want to, and we should. Pray regularly. Key three, the third basic key I want to give you this afternoon. Expect. Don't just think you might get, but expect an answer. Now, Mr. Davis' sermonette ties right in with that. We have to have faith. And brethren, as he said, one thing you can pray for is faith. Ask for faith. Say, Father, give me the faith. Like that man who wanted his child to be healed. And Jesus said, do you have faith? And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The man wept, it said. And he was crying out to him in a sense, Lord, I believe. Help them my unbelief. He wanted to believe. He said, I sort of believe, but, you know, please help me. And Jesus did heal the child. He understood. The man was very sincere. He knew he didn't have perfect faith, but he was trying. Expect an answer. Don't, you are not going through a routine. Remember that. You are not going through some routine when you pray to God. Don't be go blah, 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 the same thing all the time. You're talking to your father. You're talking to the governor of the universe up there in heaven who controls the rise and fall of nations, who controls the weather when he wishes to. He doesn't always intervene in the weather every day, and he doesn't always, and usually does not always intervene in all the affairs of all the nations. He guides over all circumstances, and he lets men and women learn lessons, you see. He's not causing every specific hurricane, and he doesn't say, I'm going to zap these people over in this city and zap them. No, he just lets it happen by the forces of nature or sometimes even Satan, but he intervenes when he needs to. And when we pray to him, he may intervene a lot of times because then he'll feel a need and feel a desire because his children are asking him. And he can intervene in the weather for us. Just like in the windstorm there, Jesus was on the boat, you know, and the men were scared and they said, Lord, don't you care? We're sinking. We're dying. We're perishing, I think is the word is used in the King James. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the sea, and and the storm, and it stopped. And they were trembling. And he says, oh, you of little faith, what's wrong with you? Remember that? Oh, you of little faith. What would he say if he were standing here today looking at you and at me? (laughs) Wow, we'd be in trouble. He says, you are the most materialistic. You're the most consumer-oriented. You're the most hedonistic, fun-loving. You want comfort. You want everything easy. Society, I have ever seen. You don't have very much faith. And, of course, God tells us that. So we can get some more faith, and we've got to learn to build faith, pray for faith, exercise faith, and expect an answer, and know that you're talking to the great God. You're not going through a routine. You're beseeching help from the Savior, and from the source of all power, he is our Savior, but he is also the source of all the power in the universe. Turn to Acts chapter 4, brethren, if you would, just to give an example of this attitude, perhaps, that we should have more of. Acts chapter 4. And uh, I get a little bit more of this tea up here. I want to paint the setting for you a little bit here. Uh, remember that they had been threatened, these men, and uh, the priests and all, uh, and the Jewish leaders had threatened uh, Peter and John and, uh, 
And being let go, they went to their own people after this threatening because they'd healed this man. And then the group began to pray to God, knowing that their leaders were being threatened, knowing that terrible persecution was building, which it did come later. And so in verse 23, being let go, they went to their own companions, reported all the chief priests and elders had said. So when they heard that, they, that is a quite a number of brethren meeting here, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Now, they had a leader. They would have all known to say the same thing. So they did have a leader, but they were following and praying together. Lord, you are God. Notice the way they talk about God, brethren, again. It isn't just, bub, 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 bub. Lord, you are God. They remind themselves in detail, break their prayer down fine, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. You're the creator of everything. You're the real God, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and so on? For truly, verse 27, against your holy servant, the King James has, uh, what is it, holy child, I think. And uh, that's why the new King James is so much better. Because in the original Greek, the word is not child, back in Luke 1 or before Jesus was born or when he was born a child, but Jesus is not a child now and you should not think of him as a child and God doesn't talk about him as a child. And they weren't talking about him as a child. But the new King James just has hundreds of little things like this that are more correct than the old King James and it is more correct. I've checked up and 90% of the time if there's a difference, the new King James is correct or more helpful. Against your holy servant. Jesus is not a little child now. He's the great God sitting in power at the right hand of the Father against your servant, Jesus, whom you've anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and elders of Israel together, uh, were gathered together to do your hand and your purpose, whatever your hand and purpose determined before to be done. And, of course, they knew that. Their leader pointed that out to each other in a sense. They were talking to God but reminding themselves that these weren't devilish men necessarily, God had intended this and guided the circumstances where these men did kill Christ because they didn't understand what they were doing. Jesus didn't say, you're a bunch of demons. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, God had determined that and he put a situation there. He knew their carnal nature and he knew this would happen and predicted it hundreds of years ahead of time. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. You see, you're going to give us more boldness. You're going to give us more impact. You're going to give us more power as you stretch out your hand to heal and validate what we're doing. And we can begin to pray that. Father, we're here. We're going to do a bigger work. And as we begin to do that work, please begin to give us more of the gifts of your spirit because all these, you know, Sunday keepers around here, most of them are sincere. They mean well. They don't just, they don't understand yet. And they'll say, well, we preach too, and we talk about the end of the world, and we love Jesus, and what's the difference, and who, who gives you the right to be right? That's what they're going to think. But if we have the gifts of God's Spirit, and then there will be several distinguishing factors, you see, we will be able to prove more thoroughly and consistently what we're preaching right out of the Bible, which they can't do. We're going to convict them, not convince them. They won't all believe, but they'll be mad, some of them, because they're convicted that truly we're to really keep the commandments, including the Sabbath and the holy days and so forth, not just talk about them.
and we'll preach those things that are true. Secondly, we will preach the, the, the uh, prophecies in detail, which they can't do because they can't understand. And as these things come along, which we are preaching, and they have not been preaching and they do not understand, that's going to convict them also and make them realize and validate us. Here's where the work of God is. And thirdly, as we have the gifts of God's Spirit, and more powerfully and more regularly, heal the sick, discern spirits, cast out demons, and perform miracles, then those gifts validate, you see, the preaching of the Word and give us greater power as we go out to do the work of God. So grant your servants boldness that they may speak your Word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders, not just healing, they did all kinds of things, signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, not a helpless little child, but your servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. God heard their prayer and literally shook the building in a way that didn't obviously hurt anyone, but let them know that God was there. God was the God of power. And as we go on, brethren, we're going to begin to see more things like that. I'm not saying tomorrow, but if we can begin to, as we preach these sermons, as we pray for one another, as we pray for the work, we will begin to see things like this happening, no doubt, as we move toward the kingdom of God, as we move toward the end of this age. So they expected an answer as they talked to the God of Israel, and he shook the building, and no doubt they did go out, as you will see the following chapters, with great power, and more and more people were converted even a whole company of the priests, the Jewish priests, were converted. And later on in chapter uh, uh, 5, uh, as they prayed for power, why it says here in verse 14, uh, believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes, both the men and women, so that they brought out the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the, pa- the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Just Peter's shadow. Jesus said, the things that I do you shall do, and greater things than these shall you do. And Jesus didn't have that particular thing. Uh, He at least touched them or did something in most cases, but just Peter's shadow healed them. And a multitude were gathered together from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. It was God's time to put his stamp of approval on that early church to show where he was working. He didn't do that everywhere at all times. I know that. And that we can comfort ourselves. That didn't happen everywhere. That we're not that far down the scale. He did do that at the beginning, though, to show his power. And he heard their prayer. They were asking him in detail about their needs. And we must do the same. Uh, And they expected an answer. Now let's turn to James chapter 1, if you would, brethren. James uh, chapter 1. And uh, let's begin here in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberal and without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. You've got to ask in faith and beseech God for faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Romans 10 verse 17. As you hear the word of God, as you hear this sermon, as you heard Mr. Davis' sermon, those things can give you faith. If you listen in a right attitude, even that sermon can increase your faith. And hearing the Word of God and reading the Word of God can give you faith. If you feed upon it regularly, 
And then if you exercise that faith, do things about it expectantly, see God answers, then that, see, you know, it builds on itself. You have more faith. So you've got to ask in wisdom, ask in faith, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, uh, go on here, I'm sorry, verse 6, no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If you're just tossed about by wind and you sort of believe for a few seconds, then later you're not believing at all. Most of you don't go to that extreme. But a lot of you say, well, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. <laughs> I'm sure but the things that I hear and see. You sort of believe, but you don't have the depth of faith. You should. Ask for faith. Study the Bible to get more faith. Exercise faith. And so on, as we have told you uh, to do so many times. Build faith and learn to pray in faith. And if you pray in faith, you will receive powerful, uh, powerful answers. The fourth key I want to give you is to worship and adore God. If you want your prayers heard, you've got to come before God in an attitude of worship and adoration. Worship God and adore God and Christ as you pray. And, of course, we should start out our prayers, our normal prayers, just like Jesus said. Get down on both knees, lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then we expand on that as we begin our prayers. That's just the outline. Thank you, Father, for life and breath. Thank you, Father in heaven, for making all the sons and daughters of men in your image to be like you are. What the awesome opportunity we all have. Thank you for calling at least a few thousand of us out of this world to know you and giving us the opportunity at this time to really know you and to know Jesus and to be in the first resurrection. Thank you, Father. We could probe right down the line, you know. Thank you for giving your son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us, to help us be like you are, to forgive our sins. Thank you, Father in heaven, for your word, the precious word of God. And thank him for all those things. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, wherein you beget us as your very sons. Thank you, Father, for, you know, for the church, where we can get the encouragement and, and the, the balance and, the, and this, the fellowship and the love and, and the things we get in God's church. Thank you for your work that we can be directly involved in helping prepare for your kingdom. And we can thank God for the beautiful day, for our home, for our wife, our family, our children, our loved ones. Thank you for living, we can live in the United States and for still blessing Israel so much. In your mercy, you have great patience, we can tell God. And he's still giving us wonderful things. So we have a thousand things we can thank God about every day. But we don't need to do it that long, but take five or ten minutes. Mr. Armstrong did say that he often devoted one-third. He said approximately. He said sometimes it's one-half. But he said, I often devote one-third of my whole major prayer to thanking and praising God. So if you pray 30 minutes in the morning, which would be a good idea, you could spend 10 minutes just thanking and praising God, a hallowing God's name as you start out. Worship and adore God. That's so important to have that attitude. And I think, brethren, and some of you may have heard of sermons I've given in years past, but on why David was a man after God's own heart. We've had sermons on that. I've heard a couple others by others. Mr. Fannin wrote a nice article we published. I'd like to write another article because mine would be a little different, not contradictory. We all have different insights into those things. But 
One reason is because David worshipped and adored God in a remarkable way, in a very sincere way, not flattery, <laughs> not flattery. He meant it from the depths of his being. Uh, turn back to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. I could read, of course, the entire book of Psalms <laughs> virtually and, and give you that examples of that. But just Psalm 18, I think, is a very good example, this prayer of David. He says, I will love you, O eternal, my strength. Verse 1, the eternal is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Think of all those picture, pictures he's painting. You see that God is his rock, the strong foundation of his being, his fortress to protect him. He gives him strength, his shield to protect him. David had, as you know, hundreds of physical enemies, thousands if you counted, of course, the, all the Philistines and all the others. And my shield, the horn of my salvation. I will call upon the eternal who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death encompass me. The floods of ungodliness have made me afraid. Yes, the heathen tried to kill him. His own sons tried to kill him. Others in his entourage tried to turn on him and kill him or overthrow him from time to time. And God delivered him again and again. The sorrows of Sheol, or the grave, surrounded me. It looked like he was dead. He had to flee from Saul. Barely made it on a number of occasions. Cried out to God, Please, Father, please, eternal God, God of Israel, Lord God of the armies of Israel, help me. The snares of death encompassed me. In my distress, I called upon the Eternal and cried out to my God, and He heard my voice from His temple. And my cry came to Him before Him and even to His ears. Verse 7, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills quaked and were shaken because He was angry. Well, I don't know if God caused a local earthquake. He might have, but God was picturing, or David was picturing by God's inspiration, the power of God and His his uh, righteous indignation against what was being done and how he did intervene and he smashed David's enemies, literally, many, many times. Verse 13, The Eternal also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones, coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance and He vanquished them. Well, in one battle that you read about, He literally had lightning and, and, and hail and stuff to scatter the enemy and delivered ancient Israel. He said in verse 20, The Eternal rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He's recompensed me, for I've kept the ways of the Eternal. Yes, you've got to walk with God. You are forgiven your past sins by grace through the death of Jesus. No question about that, but God expects you to do something. What's the first word John the Baptist mentioned? What's the first word Jesus mentioned? You know, in Mark 1, 14. What's the first word the Apostle Paul mentioned in the sermon on the day of Pentecost? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. I was hearing one of the most famous evangelists of modern times preach the other night on TV, and he talked about inviting Christ in your life and doing this and doing that. Not one word was mentioned about repentance. Not one word was mentioned about burying yourself and turning your whole life around to live by every word of God and really study this book. Keep God's law. Nothing about that. Just a sentimental Jesus and bite Him into your life. No, we've got to know God in a different way. The Lord God of the armies of Israel and the God of the real God of Jesus Christ. 
So he tells God that we have to do that. And he's been blessed because he's kept the ways of the eternal and have not done wickedly and departed from God. For his judgments are before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. Yes, he could then say, God, I've tried to do my part and I ask you now to do your part. So he goes on praising God. Verse 46, the eternal lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. So on. So this is a a psalm of just praising and worshiping and adoring God all the way through. The glory, the power, the majesty of the great one who sits at the controls of the universe. Notice, brethren, back in Psalm 104, Psalm 104, he'd been describing the creation here uh, all through this. He talks about Verse 19, how God appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. Verse 21, the young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. Verse 24, O eternal, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. See, God has made them all. That great God everywhere you look. And so he said a little later uh, at, at one point here, he said, verse 31, we'll just go there. May the glory of the eternal endure forever. May the eternal rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth, our great God, and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. Then David writes, I will sing to the eternal as long as I live I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. While I have life and breath, I'm going to praise Him, honor Him, worship Him for giving me life, for giving me breath, for helping me to know Him, for helping me to have a purpose in life. I will sing praise to God while I have my being. This just comes pouring out of David and psalm after psalm. As you pray to God... Learn to pray in that way and thank God in detail for all the blessings, all the mercy He's given our nation, that He's given your family, that He's given you personally, that He's given His church, that He's given His work, that He's given His people. The fifth key is something that Mr. Armstrong got me on to years ago. And he said two or three times through the years, or maybe more, but I heard him say two or three times, he said, one of the great lacks even in the church of God is he said that we have grown up as Protestants and Catholics and got our habit of praying, just rope prayers and so on. And he said, often we don't have the passion toward God that we should have and we don't put our hearts in our prayers. That's the key. Learn to put your heart in your prayer. Learn to put your whole being in your prayer. Learn to mean it. Learn to build the right kind with God's help of of real meaning and intensity and passion toward God. When I first was courting my wife and driving up to Bakersfield and coming back, I had a great deal of uh, feeling and intensity. And I would sometimes thank God all the way back or part of the way back in the car. We had moonlit nights. It seemed like every night was a moonlit night. It wasn't. <laughs> she was so pretty and so sweet. And so I would thank God for her and ask God to guide it for good. And I didn't have to repeat something over and over. I just, it just, you know, it's normal. I was driving all alone in the car 
And, you know, you men, you probably had a great deal of passion. I don't mean sexual passion. You might have had some of that too, but you shouldn't have been dwelling on that aspect of it. Uh, but how beautiful and how wonderful it was to have someone to be your sweetheart and to first marry you and so on. And uh, we ought to have that to God. As you've heard me say in other sermons, learn to have a love affair with God. Learn to have a love affair with Jesus Christ. Learn to have deep, profound feeling where you worship them, you adore them. This first, this fourth key I gave you, it comes natural as you think how wonderful they are. And then as you talk to God, have that passion toward God, that deep, profound feeling as you pray to God. One of Mr. Armstrong's uh, favorite uh, scriptures on this was Hosea uh, chapter 7. Let's turn there. Hosea chapter 7. I started to bring the other translation, but I'll just give it to you. It's not that important. A Moffat has it a little bit more clearly, but you get the sense of it from the uh, King James and the New King James. Hosea 7, he's talking about our people's Israel. He says in verse 11, Ephraim is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I'll spread my net on them. I'll bring them down like the birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. Now, our congregation has heard about this through Mr. Armstrong and through many of us for over 50 years, that Assyria is going to humble us and that we're going to go through a great chastisement. He says their congregation will have heard, and hopefully our whole nation will have heard by the time we finish this work. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. This is a dual prophecy referring to modern Israel as well as ancient Israel when you understand it. And I'll explain that sometime. Destruction to them because they've transgressed against me, though I've redeemed them. Yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart. And as Moffat translates it, which is obviously talking about, they did not put their hearts into their prayers. That's the way the Moffat translation has it. He's certainly talking about prayer here when they cry out, you know. They did not put their hearts into their prayers when they wailed on their bed and so on. So God says, I'm not going to hear their prayers because of that and obviously because of all these other problems primarily. If you cry out to God and you put your heart in your prayer, God will bless you. God will help you. God will deliver you. But brethren, we've got to have more passion in our prayers. We've got to have more passion in our Christian lives. It's not wrong to have more feeling even in the service. And I'm not asking people to start saying amen and hollering and going like this in the church. But sometimes we're so staid, uh, we're afraid to sort of mutter occasionally something or or do anything. And, and we can have more deep feeling and should express it. And if there's a great announcement or exciting announcement about the growth of the work, I don't mean what like I said today, just general growth. But I know in the early church in the auditorium and, and uh, even more back, I was starting to say in the library building and uh, even in the Shakespeare Club, I remember again and again before the headquarters church got so big, Mr. Armstrong would make a really good announcement and people would just applaud. And uh, he'd talk about the work and you could hear some saying, oh, yes, that's good. Or they, you know what I mean? There was a feeling of uh, just coming back. Not that everyone's sitting like this, afraid to move, afraid to mutter, afraid to applaud, afraid to do anything. And I think we've grown up, many of us, in our Roman Catholic Protestant uh, subdue our emotion society where we restrain that. And uh, I'm not asking that we become Pentecostal, but I think as time goes on and maybe more people from other backgrounds come in among us, uh, we should have more feeling and not act funny if they have some feeling or show it. 
uh, I know in the New York church when we were still on track, very much on track under Mr. Armstrong, I'm talking about the 1960s, why uh, I go to New York and there were more of the Gentile brethren there and you who are here will understand, I'm not talking down, I'm saying it was a good thing. Our black brethren, our Puerto Rican brethren, our Latino brethren, and they sometimes went beyond what our others would do, but didn't hurt anything. It gave a sense of excitement to the service. And uh, we, I think, in the living church, because we've been through so many trials and and uh, we want to do things exactly right or something, we're afraid to have any feeling. So get over it. <laughs> and uh, I'd rather we'd have a little feeling. I'm not asking you to go to the opposite extreme, but if you really want to be excited about the things of God and you would applaud for an announcement about the work or some, you know, some young person uh, giving a, a special music or uh, there's extra laughter or somebody even muttering something or a feeling, a wave of approval, yes, or something coming back, uh, that's not wrong if it's a natural, sincere thing. We've tended to squelch the passion. We've tended to squelch the emotions, I think, more than obviously Jesus was used to and Peter and Paul. The Jewish people have a great deal of passion. And I'm sure they had that and showed that in some of their services. But most of all, regardless of the outward noise, we've got to put our hearts in our prayers and cry out to God and uh, do that in much greater, uh, let's say, depth than perhaps we have ever done before. Turn back to James, if you would, again the book of James, and I'm going to go this time to chapter 5. James, chapter 5. Trying to find my... Let's read verse 16. He's just been talking about being anointed and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And he said in verse 16, Confess your trespasses one to another... And often you have made physical and spiritual mistakes in being sick. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer, not a dull, uninterested, lacking in emotion, humdrum prayer, but the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So God wants us to put our hearts in our prayers and have fervent prayers Notice also, brethren, Hebrews chapter 5, if you would. Hebrews uh, chapter 5. And this, of course, is a, a, a wonderful example. And uh, I've given before, but it's a very moving example to me about the Son of God. He talks about Jesus Christ here in verse uh, uh, 6. He was a priest forever. Christ was a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death was heard because of his godly fear. That tremendous awe he had of the great God. And though he was a son, yet Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered now, brethren, when he was in the flesh and he knew what was ahead of him, this may have been describing that prayer on that last night, but I think there were other times he did this as well, no doubt. He offered up prayers with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was probably literally shaking and crying, tears streaming down his face. 
Father, please help me. Only through you can I make it. And there isn't anyone else to die for this world. And I'm weak. I'm here. I'm surrounded by this flesh. I'm surrounded by carnal people. Help me. And he begged God with vehement cries and tears as he prayed. Most of us have probably never prayed as passionately as Jesus did. But it won't hurt us to have a little passion in our life if we guide it the right way. Not to be uncontrolled passion. God doesn't want uncontrolled passion in a bullfight or screaming at some rock concert or uncontrolled sexual passion or uncontrolled passion in war to kill, to get even. Uncontrolled passion in serving Him or religious services. Controlled, yes, but still passion. Profound feeling expressed outwardly on occasion. That's good. And that's like Christ and that's like God. Let's turn now to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. And uh, I want us to begin reading here. This is the last night of Jesus Christ's life here on the earth. And coming out, verse 39, Luke 22, verse 39, He went to the Mount of Olives, and as He was accustomed, He and His disciples followed Him. And when He came to the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is Your will, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And that might have been one occasion when he had strong cries and tears to God, beseeching God, if there's any other way, Father, please help. But not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And you have heard, perhaps, and I have heard and read even in books about this where they have talked to medical doctors and others who say that under stress, sometimes the blood vessels burst and through osmosis or whatever the term is used, it can get into the sweat glands. And you can have blood mixed with sweat under extreme agony, under extreme anxiety. And that's what Jesus Christ went through. We are not here to play church. We hear that expression and even take that for granted. We've got to know that, brethren. We've got, if we don't belong here, we shouldn't be here. Let's not play games. We are here to serve the living God at the end of an age. And God help us to wake up. And God help us to get excited about it. And put our being into worshiping the one who gives us life and breath. We don't have any room for posing and politics and, and stuff. Being socially one-upmanship around. I know in the auditorium there in Pasadena, in headquarters, way too much of that was going on. And I'm not trying to put them down. They're gone. I'm not naming names, but up in the ministerial section, in the section where the big shots sat, why uh, uh, they had the uh, big shots all sitting in that corner, the front left-hand corner. Some of you were there remember that. And a lot of posing. And after church, well... It, it, oh, is your dress at Yves Saint Laurent or whatever? I can't, I don't know all these titles, but women's dresses. And is this yours and that? And these women would get up and go through this and the men would, you know, and how important. And they would visit with all each other important and strut, and strut around. And they weren't off in the corner talking to the little people. They were nearly always spending the entire time right there showing that they're with the big people. They were important and so on. We've got to be sure we don't do that. We're not here for that stuff. 
That's a bunch of uh, baloney. It's worth nothing. It's refuse in God's sight. That kind of approach. We're not here for that. We're here to serve the living God and to serve His people and to serve the little ones as best we can. Mr. Ames and I, I'm not trying to excuse us, we need to do more of this, but we can't necessarily visit every one of you in your homes and, and get out and anoint everyone personally and so on and so forth. And Mr. Bryce is sitting here, uh, the other leading evangelist. He's got to be traveling all over the world, literally, and he'll hope he'll take my place. I meant to talk and, and get his plans ready to go to the board meeting, you know, this spring or, or uh, early summer over in uh, England. And my wife and I are going to South Africa in a few months, God willing. They've been wanting us to come there. So with all the things we have to preach and teach and write and do TV, we can't be the local pastor to the extent we'd like to be. But on the other hand, if any one of you wants me to anoint you, or you want Mr. Bryce to anoint you, or you want Mr. Ames to anoint you, or one of us, don't think we're too busy. You know, I think some of you felt we're too busy and you just got to get whichever elders on anointing duty. I'd be glad to anoint you, and I'm sure Mr. Bryce would, Mr. Ames, or any of our ministers, not just to leave anyone else out, but mention the other evangelists, Mr. Apartian, when he's here. He's out preaching, isn't in Asheville today. So uh, anyway, we do want to serve and we do want to help. Well, all of us have got to lay down our lives for our brethren, and we've got to have a passion for that and do the best we can within the parameters of our strength and our position and the demands made on us. So God help us all to do that and to have tremendous passion and a tremendous feeling and put our hearts in our prayers. So brethren, as you go through each day, learn to pray, learn to walk with God. That is one of the main ways you do walk with God. Number one, talk to God in detail. Break your prayers down fine. Talk to him as you would your father. You want a loan. Tell your dad why you want a loan. What the circumstances are. Promise to pay it back. You know, whatever. You know, say, I'm going to try to do better, father. And I, I, I need your help now. And explain it to him as you talk to God. You don't earn God's blessing. Don't get me wrong. You can't say, I'm going to be good and therefore you owe me this. Don't have that. God will have mercy on you, but say, I'm going to try to do my part, but I ask you to go away and above and beyond what I can do or what I deserve because you're the father of mercies. If we get what we deserve, we're all going to be dead. <laughs> I think you know that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But talk to God in detail. Secondly, talk to God regularly. Talk to Him all through the day. Learn to talk to Him maybe 30, 40 times a day or more just in quick prayers and three times a day on your knees if you can, at least twice and hopefully three times most days and do it regularly, uh, do it constantly and so on. And then, of course, uh, a third key is to expect an answer. Build faith. Don't just say, well, I'm just praying and then think, well, I've talked, but it doesn't mean anything. No, you're talking to the God of the universe and you'd better learn to expect an answer. Pray to God for faith. Write our, uh, read our articles about faith. Study the Bible about faith. Exercise faith. Fourthly, as you pray and as you approach God about anything, learn to worship and adore God. Think about how great He is, how awesome He is. He who sits between the cherubim with Jesus at His right hand. And he's going to send Jesus back to this earth in a few years in glory and power and majesty with the holy angels of God. 
and the earth is going to shatter in a sense and the, 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 the things of this earth. He's going to break through the sound barriers and all the other things that are here and he's going to be here in power and we're going to rise in the air to meet him in the air if we're walking with God and if we do our part and have Christ in us. So think about how great that God is and the wonderful, awesome, great things he's promised for us and adore him and thank him for this. Fourthly, put your heart in your prayers. Pour out your being as you talk to God. Have the right emotion. Have the right passion. Have the right fervency as you talk to God. And, of course, fifthly, the fifth thing that we all ought to do uh, is, uh, well, I think that is the fifth one here. I'm just kind of summarizing here too quickly. The other is to talk to God regularly. So do those things, these four things, uh, five things. Talk to God in detail. Talk to God regularly. Uh, and uh, expect an answer, worship and adore God, and finally put your hearts into your prayers. I hope all of you will kind of go over that in your mind, think about it, and try to build those qualities into your prayer and into your life. Uh, that's very, very important, and it can help change your life. It can help change the work of God if we'll just really get excited about it and realize that our Father is, in fact, the governor of the universe. And we have a chance to have awesome power, awesome help, awesome answers if we come in this way before God.